hello again, everybody. It's Tony Payne here, and this is The Painful Truth, a weekly text and audio journal that seeks to bring the truth of Christ crucified to every aspect of our lives as Christians. And today's post in particular thinks about an aspect of the death of Jesus and what it means for us, but I'll come to that in just a moment. First of all, just to clarify, this is one of the free posts uh, from The Painful Truth. Every three weeks or so, I send out a post to everybody on the whole mailing list, that is, to those people who are partners, uh, who are paying a small subscription each month to get The Painful Truth. They get every edition every week. But I also send out one every three weeks or so to the whole list, and this is one of those. If you're on that free list, if you're a free lister, and you're wondering what you've missed out on over the last couple of weeks, well, we've had posts on masculinism, which I don't even know is a word, but it's the word I use to describe the kind of flip side of feminism. That is, what male attitudes and ideologies and ways of thinking influence the way we read the Bible about men and women. And that was really a follow-up post to that one I did about feminism. We had one on that. I also looked last time at the nature and value of gospel outlines, like Two Ways to Live. What goes into a good gospel outline? Are they necessary or useful? And is an outline like Two Ways to Live worth renovating and fixing up and putting out in a new edition, which is something we're considering doing? And I also sent out a draft new version of the Two Ways to Live outline for comments. So you've missed out on that if you're a free lister, but that's okay. You can catch up on those topics uh, in the archive or start getting every week's post just by hitting the subscribe button on the website and becoming a partner, a regular recipient of this regular podcast. Uh, or if you'd really like to be a partner and get every edition, but you're really skint at the moment and you just can't afford anything, send me an email at tonyjpayne@me.com and I'll sort you out. I'll make you a free partner for the next 12 months. But on to this week's topic, which is the Bible verse that still kills me. In my part of the Christian hive, the bees have been buzzing quite a lot recently about an apparent shortage of senior ministers, senior pastors, or rectors as we call them here in my part of the world. It's been somewhat sensationally dubbed the minister drought, and I don't know if that's true or not, whether we really have a drought, but various theories have nevertheless been put forward as to why people might not be offering themselves to be the senior pastors of churches. Uh, it's the system and all its failings. It's the materialism and selfishness of the current generation. It's the ridiculous burden of administration and compliance that senior pastors have to bear these days. It's our failure to cast a positive vision of what a great role it is to be the senior pastor of a church. Uh, someone even suggested that it's because we don't have a Philip Jensen anymore, that Philip Jensen was like a genius or a savant who managed to recruit all these people to ministry. And since we don't have anyone like him anymore, then we're struggling to recruit people. And there's been all kinds of other suggestions. Now, I'm not going to try to untangle all this spaghetti of different factors and influences that have contributed to the current circumstances. But the discussion has prompted me to think about something that has been on my mind for a while. Why is it that some churches have the happy knack of recruiting a steady stream of people into full-time gospel ministry, and other churches don't so much? Even accounting for the demographic or socioeconomic or 
other contextual factors that influence these things, some churches do keep sending keen, gifted, godly men and women off to theological college and into full-time ministry, and others don't so much. And why is this? Well, reflecting theologically on my own experience of being recruited in this sort of fashion, I suppose you'd say, and of seeing that kind of recruitment in action successfully in various ministries over the past, well, I guess it's nearly four decades now, I can identify, I think, at least four factors that are important, and perhaps there are more. But in my observation, when these four things, these four factors or drivers are present, people with full-time Christian ministry on their hearts somehow keep bubbling up to the surface and being sent off to Bible college. And over the next few posts, I want to explore what these different factors are. Not so much because of any particular current crisis or perception or because this will solve a particular problem we have, but because these four factors, if I'm right, are really an indicator of good health for any church. In fact, if these kinds of things aren't present in your current ministry, whatever it is, then the failure to recruit people for full-time ministry might actually be the least of your problems. But let me get to the first one. The first factor is that the radical call of the gospel to die to self and live for Christ is being boldly and persistently preached and taught and exemplified. The first factor is that the radical call of the gospel to die to self and to live for Christ is being boldly preached and taught. And I can still very vividly remember when that gospel came home to me in that way. I was about 20, I suppose, a keen but still very green young Christian, fresh from the country, and a misspent youth, a misspent youth in high church charismatic Anglicanism, but that's a story for another time. I was discovering in my new context here in Sydney, for the first time really, the mind and heart-expanding delights of the Bible, of the Bible being taught and expounded passage by passage. I never knew that so much profound truth could be found in a Bible passage if you took the time to really listen to it. And I never anticipated the kind of wonderful spiritual carnage that could be wrought when concepts like election or propitiation or biblical theology went off in your head like a bomb, like a colour bomb. All in all, it was dawning on me that this Christianity caper that I'd committed myself to was a much deeper and more profound thing than I'd realised. And then, one evening, at a conference, a preacher who was gifted with the kind of clarity and boldness I'm speaking about, explained a Bible verse to me. He explained 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I guess that's two verses. These are the verses where Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Extraordinary words. And as the stark truth of those words started to dawn on me in the middle of this talk I was listening to, everything went out of focus for a minute. The universe went out of focus for a time. And when it resolved back into sharpness again, everything had changed. As it says in the following verses, the old had passed away, behold, the new had come. It was a new reality for me. It's not as if I was unfamiliar either with the gospel up to this point. I already knew and believed that Christ had died as my substitute, that my sins were forgiven by his blood, and that eternal life had been granted to me as a gift by his grace. I knew and believed that Jesus was Lord and that I should obey him. I was a Christian, in other words as I guess Paul assumed his Corinthian readers were as well. But the message of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 somehow went further or deeper than that. It showed me what the gospel of Jesus' death really meant for my life. And it meant that it was over. My life, that is. It wasn't just that Christ had died for me on the cross. He had died as me. He had died not only as my substitute, but as my representative. As a consequence of his death, I had also died. That's what the verse says. One died for all, therefore all have died. And so my old life, I came to realize, was dead. It was gone with all its dreams and ambitions and desires and preferences. And a new life had now begun in which I lived not for myself, but for him who for my sake died and was raised. And this, I realized, is how the love of Christ controls or compels us, as it says in verse 14. It first of all kills us and then raises us to a new life of service to the Christ who for our sake died our death. Now for me, as all this crashed into my brain at that stage of my life, as it exploded in my mind, it, it, it wasn't a question any longer for me whether in the future I would pursue full-time ministry for Christ or something. Because I knew from that moment on that I already was a minister of and for Christ. The life I lived, I now lived entirely for him. Him who for my sake died and was raised. I knew from that moment onwards that the driving force of my life was now to be Christ, and in particular the ministry of reconciliation that God had initiated in Christ and had given to his people. Uh, this is the ministry that Paul describes in the verses that immediately follow. I had joined that wonderful band of fellow workers, as he calls them in chapter 6, verse 1, who together constantly appeal to the world and to one another to be reconciled to God and not to receive his reconciling grace in vain. And for those of you, just as a little side note, who are interested in the Greek, I very strongly suspect that the word that is usually translated fellow workers with God in chapter 6, verse 1, that's Suneguntes, is actually referring to Paul working together with the Corinthians 
rather than being a fellow worker with God, although the latter is also true, of course, and as it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But in 2 Corinthians 6, I think he's saying to the Corinthians that the new life you're now living, the life that is the new creation, the old has passed, the new has come, is a life of working together as ambassadors for Christ to bring the message of reconciliation to the world and to one another. All of this means that a long time before any thought entered my head as to whether I should go down a particular path into full-time gospel work, as we call it or think of it, I'd already been recruited. I'd already been recruited for a lifetime of gospel service. I already knew that whatever particular path I ventured down, the destination would be the same and the purpose would be the same. To spend my time and my energies, my resources, all that I have, in the service of the one who for my sake died and was raised. It wouldn't be in pursuing whatever dreams or ambitions or agendas I previously had. But it would be seeking to help everyone around me in whatever way I could to be reconciled to God and to live more and more for him who for their sake died and was raised. And if there is such a thing as a call to ministry, I think this is it. It's the radical call of the gospel that comes to every Christian to come to Christ and die, to begin a new life in his service as one of his ambassadors in the world. It's not a message for an elite squad of gifted recruits. This is the challenge of the gospel for every Christian. And it seems to me that where this revolutionary message is being boldly, clearly and persistently preached and taught and by God's Spirit is having a profound effect in Christian hearts, well, in that place, a growing core of of gospel ambassadors will be created. And some of these gospel ambassadors will be gifted with the abilities and character and opportunities to engage in that ministry full-time with the financial support of others, But whether or not it becomes our full-time occupation, it remains our full-time role. It's who we are. Our old life is gone, and in this new life, we now live for him who, for our sake, died and was raised. That's the first key factor, I think. We won't raise up some Christians for full-time occupational gospel ministry, unless we are calling and raising up all Christians to be sold-out, full-time ministers of Christ. And this happens at the first level through the clear, bold preaching of passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, or Colossians 3, 1-4, or Mark 8, 34-38, or Galatians 2, 20, or many other passages besides. That is... It happens through the preaching of the gospel of Christ's death and our death. Well, that takes us to a second and obviously related factor that I've glossed over so far. Granted that we are all called radically to this service of Christ with our whole selves, how are we to think about the relationship between doing that as a full-time occupation, that that is, as a pastor or gospel worker of some kind, as we call them, and the daily secular work by which most of us earn a living. How do we relate those two things together and understand them? 
in my observation, churches and other ministries that have figured this issue out and teach on it boldly and clearly also seem to be those who raise up lots of people for full-time gospel ministry. But that's a discussion for next time. Well, I'll come back to that second factor next week. Uh, In the meantime, thanks so much for being here for this little post, this little episode of The Painful Truth. A special thanks to those of you who have contributed feedback or suggestions to the revisions to the Two Ways to Live outline that we're proposing and thinking about. Um, It's been posted up on the website and a bunch of you have jumped in and made really useful comments. I'm very grateful for that. Thanks so much. I'm also doing some work at the moment on some new training material that makes use of the Two Ways to Live outline. And the current thought is to split the current Two Ways to Live training material in half and create two completely new resources. One that focuses on learning or knowing the gospel really thoroughly and deeply by working through the points of Two Ways to Live and exploring their meaning and their connections and their logic. Uh, We're in draft form anyway, calling that new framework Learn the Gospel with Two Ways to Live. And a second resource that does what Two Ways to Live has more traditionally done, and that is to teach people how to have gospel conversations using the Two Ways to Live outline as a framework. And I'm calling that one, for the moment anyway, Share the Gospel with Two Ways to Live. Now, I've done quite a lot of work on the first one of those, Learn the Gospel, and I'm going to share some of the drafts of that work with you over the next few weeks. Uh, Stay tuned for that, and once again, any feedback or suggestions you could give on the shape of that new resource and how it's working would be super helpful. Well, that's all for this week on The Painful Truth, um, with the subject of the Bible verse that still kills me, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Even uh, talking it through again today, not only casts my mind back to that time, but challenges me afresh to live for the one who died for me and was raised. And my prayer is that it challenges you this way as well. Thanks for being with me again. My name's Tony Payne. Bye for now.